This is episode 179 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Human Segmentation Clock with Dr. Mickey Ebesuya. Hey everyone, we are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Want to stay even more up to date with the latest Stem Cell Podcast news? You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Stem Cell Podcast and be the first to know about upcoming guests and contests. Today, we have Dr. Mickey Ebesuya from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Barcelona. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on synthetic developmental biology. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming up. But first, speaking of stem cell news, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPS News, a free weekly newsletter provided by Stem Cell Science News. ESC and IPS News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in ESC and IPS research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. So save time and keep current with ESC and IPS News. You can subscribe for free at www.escellnews.com. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup for this episode, and I want to start with a plug for our next episode, number 180, which is going to focus on some trainees in stem cell research, and that's going to be an exciting one. Um, it's uh, opportune here because we're covering a paper from the lab of one of those trainees, Dr. Gordana Vunkak-Novakovic. Wow, I really butchered that one. You know the name. Everybody knows the name. We got uh, Navid Tavakol who's from Dr. Gordana's lab. I'm going to just go with that to be safe. Um, he's going to tell us all about our work. But I got a different roundup story here that's not even related to that. It's about the temporomandibular joint, okay? This is a joint that connects the jawbone to the skull, and it's a big deal. You probably heard people be like, oh, TMG, whatever. Like you think like teeth grinding and whatnot. But the reality is it's a big deal. It uh, affects 10 million people in the United States alone who suffer from uh, TMG dysfunction. Um, in severe cases, it requires surgical reconstruction. It's the only option that you can really go with to restore function. There's also congenital defects, for example, this hemifacial microsomia. Also, you can have traumatic damage from an injury or you can have neoplasms. There's a lot of reasons why you may need to you know, repair a TMG. Um, and if you have you know, the more commonplace TMG inflammation, the steroid injections only provide temporary relief. If it gets bad, surgical interventions uh, produce varying results and really very rarely uh, restore TMG function. Then there is the idea of autologous transplants, but that's really limited by the geometry there, right? This is a very, uh, you know, this is a, the shape of this thing is really important, like all bones. Um, so it's tough to just take a bone graft of some place. Um, and also at the site of inflammation or injury in the TMJ, there's like morbidity. So it's a tough site for transplant. And of course, there's also like synthetic options. You think about hip replacement, but also those have, have met with poor results um, in, in trying to treat T TMJ dysfunction for a whole bunch of reasons, including like metal hypersensitivity and other things. So bottom line, there's a need there that has not been met um, to create engineered tissue constructs because they offer a patient-tailored approach, right? Um, enter Gordana, just reminding you, she's from Columbia University, has a huge lab that handles all kinds and addresses all kinds of engineering, the intersection of engineering and stem cells for regenerative approaches. Um, and Gordana's lab previously, in fact, has looked at TMJ. They've reported uh, a translational study in these, this cool model, Yucatan mini pigs, um, where they engineered anatomically correct bone grafts in these pigs. Uh, but in, the, in that previous work, the grafts in, in that they put into those pigs, they resulted in formation of a very thin layer of cartilaginous tissue. Um, and it didn't have any of the zo zonal organization or the biochemical composition and the low friction coefficient, that's key, of the native TMG uh, TMJ cartilage, right? That low friction uh, coefficient is key to the function and longevity of the graft, right? So uh, what they did in this approach, um, in this iteration, was that they focused on cartilage because it's really essential to the TMJ function um, in that, you know, friction coefficient. Uh, and they engineered the autologous 
bio, biologic anatomically matched uh, bone grafts using this micromilling. Um, and they put them on these anatomically precise scaffolds that were made from decellularized bone matrix, infused those with adipose-derived uh, uh, chondrogenic osteogenic progenitor cells, and then cultured those in a bioreactor for five weeks before implanting them. Lo and behold, six months later, after implanting them, these uh, bioengineered constructs maintained their anatomical structure. They regenerated, and this is critical, regenerate full thickness, stratified, and mechanically robust cartilage over the underlying bone. Um, and that was really the, the pith of it with this study is it's bone with cartilage. And it's what we're getting at, Arun, in all these studies that we've been covering lately is that we're focusing on greater complexity uh, in these uh, tissue-derived constructs. Um, and this particular study demonstrates the feasibility of, of regenerating this particular uh, joint, TMJ, using the, uh, a structure that's a perfect match. Okay, It's also autologous. Um, and... Uh, it's a really great, I think, proof of principle for personalized uh, joint replacement um, and focusing on the fact that the joints are kind of living things and they have a function all their own. There's a lot more complexity there than maybe uh, lesser uh, complex um, bones or tissue constructs that might be made. So this is a, a cool study coming out of Gordana's lab, which is pretty much par for the course for her and her group is uh, really translating the ortho element of STEM and regenerative medicine engineering. Yeah, good stuff coming out of the Vunyak Nabakovich lab. Oh, there. man, you did the name perfectly. Now I feel like a real idiot. <laughs> I kind of did that on purpose just to show you up. But hey, amazing stuff from the Gordana Vunyak Nabakovich lab. And we've got a trainee uh, from her lab showing up on the show not too long from now, Navid Tavakal. Uh, yeah, so Gordana's lab does amazing stuff across the board. You know, we had Casey Ronaldson Bouchard on the show a few months ago with her heart engineering stuff. And here we're talking more about bone, right? <laughs> a couple of things. So one little tidbit. I didn't realize that you can't culture Yucatan mini pigs in New York City. <laughs> apparently, you have to go to Baton Rouge to uh, to to work with these pigs, but uh, apparently there's no place to put the pigs in New York. So maybe you'll have to tell me more about that. But when it comes to the actual science, it's uh, it's a great study and you, you alluded to it. This is a particular area of the body, the temporomandibular joint, the TMJ, that doesn't get too much love, especially maybe not even on this podcast. But if you think about the importance of your jaw, right, and something you use constantly, I'm using it at a million miles per minute right now while I'm talking to you, right? So you're moving it constantly. And if something goes wrong in your jaw and in the, uh, the connective tissue in your jaw, you're going to feel it and it's going to hurt. Hmm. So this is definitely an important uh, unmet need and something that a lot of us have to deal with. And finally, just at the broader level, uh, the, the reason I really like this paper was because it's, it's reflecting a marriage between a bunch of different things. So one of obviously the stem cell biology, but two, the tissue engineering and three really cutting edge advances in imaging too. If you look mm. at some of the, the figures in this paper, really awesome 3D schematics and representation of the graphs. And uh, when you're doing some advanced tissue engineering in these Baton Rouge, Yucatan, Yucatan mini pigs, that's kind of what you have to do to make sure the graft is actually working. So what a time to be alive in stem cell biology with the, the marriage of all these cool new technologies, but you still have to go to Baton Rouge to deal with these methods. <laughs> yeah, and they say you can get everything in New York City, right? I guess not. Um, I agree. This is a, a really great synergy of many different uh, lines of inquiry. Um, and yeah, two things. Yeah, you said it. Uh, you don't know how important the TMJ until it goes wrong. And I feel like we're, we're all approaching it. Well, not you, Arun, you're a young man. Um, but I'm approaching an age where things are starting to go bad. So I appreciate this, Gordana, even though I can't say your name. Um, but the other thing that I'm really impressed by, and I love this in science generally amongst the best investigators, is like, yeah, you did that. You did the TMJ thing. You did with the Yucatan mini pigs. And then you said, yeah, we can do it better. This is not, the, the system works, but uh, it can be improved. And I think this is how we're going to get to the, the finish line is, is, you know, constantly incrementally um, improving uh, on the system to make it closer to the, the physiological uh, standard that we all want. You know, I want a physiological TMJ. I don't want no TMJ with no cartilage. I don't want no naked TMJ. That sounds painful and grindy. 
So keep it up, Gordana, <laughs> and I'll figure out your name one of these days. <laughs> Gordana Bunyak Novakovich. Repeat after me. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But yeah, great paper. Um, you know, and honestly, somebody as somebody who grew up with a lot of dental and jaw problems, this, you know, like I, I get it. I totally get it. This is this is important. You know, I wish I, I wish this was the reality when I was growing up, so I didn't have to go through all that dental pain. But I digress. Um, dark memories. I don't want to go back to that. So we're going to shift gears a little bit to uh, focusing on a paper that's coming out from the lab of another podcast friend, uh, shifting for from Gordana's lab to uh, Madeline Lancaster's lab, who we actually had on the show not too long ago. This is a paper that we knew was in the works, and we actually, I think we actually talked to her about this particular project on the podcast when we had her, uh, when we were interviewing her, using her, uh, these new choroid plexus organoids that they've developed. They had a science paper that came out earlier this year with these really neat choroid plexus organoids that actually contain little sacs of cerebral spinal fluid. Uh, what they're doing here is actually taking those organoids and applying it to something that, of course, everybody is studying these days, myself included, uh, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. So the title of the paper is SARS-CoV-2 Infects the Brain Choroid Plexus and Disrupts the Blood Cerebral Spinal Fluid Barrier in Human Brain Organoids. First author is Laura Pellegrini, who is on an absolute role right now. I think she was actually the first author of that science paper that came out as well. And as I mentioned, this is coming from Madeline Lancaster's lab, and it's uh, just came out in Cell Stem Cell. All right, so uh, this is you know actually following up on a paper that I think you talked about last last time, Dalon, and uh, a paper that came out of Goli Ming's lab from UPenn, who they they actually also used their version of a choroid plexus organoids to model coronavirus infection. But the difference here is the the Lancaster lab has these sacs of cerebral spinal fluid in their choroid plexus organoids, okay? And because of that, they those sacs are actually enclosed in an epithelial barrier. So you can model the virus actually attacking that epithelial uh, barrier really well in these, in these choroid plexus organoids. So really simply, they're able to show that one, consistent with the previous paper from Guli Ming's lab, it's not the neurons or the, the glia or the other cell types that are actually being infected by the coronavirus. So that's a cool consistency, you know, consistency between the two studies. Two, there is actually expression of the viral receptor ACE2 in the mature choroid plexus cells that are actually, uh, in particular, expressing abundant lipoproteins, but again, not in the neurons or other cell types. So again, consistent with the, the Fatty Jacob et al. paper that we talked about last time. But the like I mentioned, the big difference is that these choroid plexus organoids have active CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, right? And so you can use that to model the breakdown of the epithelial barrier that's actually harboring the CSF. Uh, and that's exactly what they showed. They're able to show that the SARS-CoV-2 is actually targeting that epithelial barrier. And once you have a breakdown of that epithelial barrier, you're getting viral shedding and also lipoprotein shedding into the cerebral spinal fluid. Okay, uh, one thing to note, they had a pretty extensive limitations um, section in this particular paper. Actually, the nice thing with a lot of the cell press journals right now when it comes to the, the coronavirus work is they're requiring you ha to have a pretty substantial limitation section just so you can, you know, no one's overhyping the work. And, you know, I think that's that's a really good thing. So one limitation in this particular study was apparently because you are working with live coronavirus in a BSL-3 condition, you're not able to use sharps to actually poke and prod the little cerebrospinal fluid containing organoids. So because of that, they're not able to directly sample the CSF in those organoids. They actually have to do an indirect sampling. So what do, what do I mean by that? Basically, uh, when that epithelial barrier is ruptured, the epithelial barrier that's surrounding the CSF, the CSF leaks into the surrounding cell culture media. And then you can detect the increase in media lipid content uh, uh, based on the rupture of the barrier. So that's kind of an indirect way to determine that, yes, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is actually targeting the epithelial barrier surrounding the CSF. And, you know, the, the 
containing liquid and lipids and all the good stuff in the cerebrospinal fluid is actually leaking out into the medium. So it's a it's a simple study that's utilizing an advance that came out earlier from the Lancaster lab. And like I mentioned, uh, Laura Pellegrini in, in the lab is on an absolute tear with uh, these back-to-back high-profile papers. But, you know, it's uh, uh, it's an important, obviously, for various obvious reasons, a very important topic to, to focus on these days. Yeah, I think this, uh, well, two things. One, I remember when we, we covered the uh, previous paper last episode, we were kind of sympathetic like oh poor madeline she got the scoop but then we said we're like yeah we're not worried about her she's probably counting her money somewhere else and here we go so um i'm glad that both both groups got their 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 big paper out of this and um i think the second thing i want to say is that i think this may be kind of representative for me of like the second wave of uh the covid papers with the first being just you know showing what cells it Mm -hmm. can hit showing really base basic observations that are the foundation for study and then this is i think kind of a next wave where they uh, are showing kind of I, I wouldn't say mechanistically but um looking at how the the virus can transit um these seemingly impermeable barriers and how specific cell types are getting hit and i think it's not getting enough play on this is that this idea of that it actually damages uh, mm-hmm. the the cord plexus and damages that barrier um, leading to leakage uh, and per- potentially entry. And I think that's the next wave that I'm waiting for in these papers where we start to connect the, the viral, viral life cycle and the targets and the reservoirs and we start to uh, connect that with the symptoms because I'm still totally mystified and really troubled by this idea of the fog, you know, this the long haulers and the fog and like Mm. as a scientist, just the idea that you're going to lose your capacity to, to really think through anything is, is terrifying. So I, I really am now curious to know how, or, and maybe the answer is out there, but how can this damage um, contribute to the, the pathology and the symptoms that people have been noting and observing? I'd be really interested to have, I have a study of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, neurological function is something that sort of function is on a gradient, right? It's not black and white. So, you know, if your neurological function is actually impaired through the effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19, you have to be able to kind of consistently evaluate that for one, but and two, kind of like what they're showing here, you have to determine the mechanism of how that's actually happening. One, I guess, last note is there's been an increase in literature identifying and investigating whether or not the coronavirus can actually get into the blood, right? Because that's sort of an element that you have to consider with the context of this study, all right? Here, they're doing everything in a sort of artificial in vitro system. You throw the virus onto the organoids and they, they target the the epithelial barrier that's surrounding the CSF, right? In the body, how is the virus going to get here? Mm. It's going to be through the blood, right? Mm. It's it's not like you're going to get an injection of the coronavirus through your skull, right? I would hope not. (laughs) But it's, it's going to, it's going to go through the blood. And I think that's still an area that we need to figure out is, you know, how active and how, um, permeable is this particular virus through the circulatory system i think we're we're in the works in the uh we're gonna we're gonna figure that out we're in the the means of figuring that out right now yes the blood that's a good segue for me arun you really know how to set me up you know the the mm-hmm. csf and the barrier function of the choroid plexus have been well described also the blood brain barrier you know there's this specific subset of endothelium that's been noted for their blood brain barrier function um, and as you said, I mean, I'm not going to talk about that specific endothelium, but you talked about the importance of connecting the circulation um, and endothelial function to pathology. I'm going to take a little bit of an interest in your specialty, although I have an interest in the heart too. Arun, forgive me for jumping into your boat here, but uh, I'm going to do it. We're talking about a story from Kit Parker at the Wies Institute, also at Harvard, um, this is looking at endothelium and, and specifically the exosomes from endotheliums, right? Um, and how it relates to treating uh, myocardial infarction and ischemic reperfusion injury. Um, so talking about that, the, the, when you have a heart attack, what do you got to do? You got to restore uh, blood flow if you have a blockage, right? 
um, infarct. And it's got to be timely uh, so that you can get up. Well, you're not going to get up so that you can survive. Uh, but the, the problem with that, it's been very well described now, is that when you stop blood flow and then uh, reperfuse, you get this kind of, uh, it's called a reperfusion injury, where you get um, a lot of cardiomyocyte death and expansion of the, the size of the infarct. Uh, and ultimately, that converges on ischemic heart disease. Um, this, the way the cells respond to that reperfusion, it's multifaceted. There's all these uh, mechanisms that lead to that pathophysiology. Uh, and, and it's thought then, in order to mitigate the damage of that, that you really need to hit all those targets. You need a multi-pronged therapeutic strategy if you're going to um, have optimal cardio protection for following the infarct and after restoring blood flow. And there's been a lot of attempts to do this, pharmacological, mechanical, also cell-based therapy. The pharmacological, mechanical have had intermediate results. And the cell therapy approaches, while they're, I guess, generally safe, the efficacy remains controversial. I'm talking really about the mesenchymal stem cells um, that have been shown to have a kind of paracrine benefit here. Uh, and that actually le led to, I think, this hypothesis that there's a, there's a broad spectrum of factors that are secreted by cells generally, but stem cells in particular that may be therapeutic. Um, and specifically, what we're talking about is these extracellular vesicles, also called exosomes. Um, and the idea there is that these exosomes maybe have a lot of goodies in them that can exert this multifaceted, multi-pronged uh, strategy um, for a clinical benefit. But it's unclear whether the, these extracellular vesicles exert their effect by binding receptors at the membrane or if they just dump a bunch of cargo into the cells. It's unclear what's really in them is the bottom line. But endothelial cells, because they're like everywhere and they perfuse and they're next to every cell is, you know, two, three cell lengths away from endothelium. So it's an ideal, quote unquote, first responder. Um, that can deal with any kind of trauma or injury. And of course, endothelial cells, they secrete a lot of exosomes. Um, so the hypothesis there at a KITS lab was that there's these endothelial-derived exosomes that contain cargo uh, that provide a protective effect. And it's not just like, you know, that's the hypothesis, but the real, where the rubber meets the road is what the hell are they, okay? What are these factors specifically? And so what uh, the Parker lab did is they mapped the protein content of human vascular endothelial exosomes um, identified proteins that had previously been associated with cellular metabolism, um, redox state, calcium handling, a lot of processes that are related to this acute uh, reaction to the ischemic reperfusion injury. And then uh, they assessed the, the cardioprotective potential um, in this hard-on-a-chip uh, ischemic reperfusion injury assay that Kit, Kit Parker's famous for doing these hard on a chip assay. And that's why it's a stem cell story here that we're covering is that they used uh, stem cell derived engineered cardiac tissues on this hard on a chip um, and showed that the endothelial exosomes alleviated cardiac cell death. Um, they also uh, mitigated the loss of contraction um, during and after, and this is what's cool about this hard on a chip is they can, they can simulate that ischemic reperfusion injury in like a dose dependent manner, right? So they found that also the exosomes can increase the res respiratory capacity of the cardiomyocytes. Um, and you know, bottom line here is that they're characterizing the exosomes, demonstrating effect and trying to mine for what the factors are. Uh, and I think it, it, it is, a, is a, I think, a soft proof of principle, and I'm not being critical, I'm just saying there's a lot more to be done, but it's a soft proof of principle, principle that you can use these exosomes as a kind of, as a multi-pronged thing, as a kind of all-in-one um, that could provide a, a therapeutic benefit for ischemic reperfusion injury uh, by, you know, hitting all the different pathophysiological elements um, in, you know, one fell swoop. So, I, I don't know actually how this can be translated specifically this, um, but clearly it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, multiple steps along the path of figuring out a, a, an approach that can be therapeutic.
Yeah, exosomes are getting a lot of attention in, over the last couple of years um, for, as you alluded to, their therapeutic potential. Uh, the tricky thing about exosomes has always kind of been how are they actually, you know, causing this therapeutic benefit, right? You have to actually investigate the inside of the ex the little exosomes and see what's actually the the cargo that's actually doing the the good deed. There's a lot of work um, that's happening in this particular field. I can drop a name, uh, Eduardo Marman here at Cedar Sinai is doing a lot of work on exosomes and uh, ischemia reperfusion injury in the context of of, um, of heart failure. But this is kind of what we talked about before with uh, Madeline Lancaster's paper. This is using a technology that was built in this particular lab. In, in the example of Dr. Lancaster, it was these choroid plexus organoids. And here we're talking about Kit Parker's uh, heart on chip, which they've used for a number of different studies in the past. So this is just another application of this technology uh, to study this process and to show how these extracellular vesicles and these exosomes can actually be therapeutic and beneficial. One thing I did want to, to mention, and maybe this is something they actually t did in the study somewhere in the supplement. I didn't take a super close look at the paper. Sorry. Sorry, Daylon. Sorry, Kit. But they focused on using Huvex, right? Isn't, isn't that the, the source of mm -hmm. their extracellular vesicles? Mm -hmm. these, these Huvex, as we know, as you know, as an endothelial extraordinaire that you are, Huvex are somewhat of an artificial cell type, right? They are um, immortalized. And I'm wondering if they actually use some sort of primary endothelial cell line as well to show consistency across the cell types. Yeah, well, I mean, Huvec are, they're not immortalized, but they, and they are like a primary cell type, but they are from the umbilical vein, which actually, interestingly, the endothelium and the umbilical vein look more like an artery. So yeah, as you said, these are endothelium that behave unlike any endothelium in, uh, the, in the body. Most notably, they don't undergo uh, endothelial to mesenchymal transition, which I think has been the plague of all vascular biologists who try to study primary endothelial cell types. Most notably, if you get endothelium from the heart, they're kind of built to undergo endo-MT. So I agree with you. Um, we're not exactly talking about a physiological source for these endothelial exosomes, you know, presumably in the heart. It's a, it's a different type of endothelium that's creating them. And, uh, you know, it, it, I spent my whole postdoc listening to Shaheen Rafi, that insane mastermind that he is, telling me how angiocrine, Daylon, angiocrine, which suggests that all <laughs> endothelium are different. Every single organ has its own little endothelium. So using the, the Huvec as their source of exosomes, I agree with you, Arun. It's not exactly dicey or sketchy, but I think sure. as I alluded to, this is a, a one, two, three, four steps along the path, but we need to really uh, refine these experiments if we're going to really, you know, get to a therapeutic threshold. If we're going to talk about our, our mentors for a second here, you, you talked about Shane Rafi. Uh, I'm going to mention a paper that came out of Joe Wu's lab that actually focuses on that exact topic that you mentioned, endothelial heterogeneity. Uh, I have a fellow postdoc, Girlfriend uh, David Pike, who actually is in Joe Wu's lab, who just published a paper on in circulation looking at that exact topic using single cell analysis to evaluate all different types of endothelial cells in the body. It's just it's one of those single cell atlas kind of papers. But like you said, a lot of heterogeneity in that paper, uh, it, you know, in the endothelial cells. And if you want to further explore that, definitely check out David's paper that just came out. We're going to shift gears entirely. OK, we're going to do something that's uh, very different from what we do here in the podcast. We're going to talk about plants. OK, we're talking about plants. Don't wow. hate on plants. They have stem cells, too. Plants are not just food. They are friends. OK, I actually used to work with Arabidopsis back in the day. I don't know if you knew that. My first research project ever, pretty much, yeah, first biological, first biology research project ever was uh, was in Dr. Philip Benfi's lab at Duke. Actually, I worked there for a year trying to generate this GFP reporter in the Arabidopsis such a powerful system, man. I mean, a lot of mechanisms are conserved across plants, you know, Rhabdopsis and, uh, and animals. And you can grow these things super fast. You can genetically manipulate them really easily. You can cross them in all sorts of ways. So, so once again, don't hate on the Arabidopsis. Don't hate on the plants. Okay. But we're going to talk about a, a, an observation 
that has been around for, you know, that has been observed for a long time now. All right. And this is the fact that plants are able to keep growing pretty much indefinitely because of they because of their meristems. Right. And we're going to bring it back to bio 101. Right. Meristems are the plant stem cells and the they're found typically at the, the root tip. Right. They have this pretty unique ability to transform themselves into a bunch of different specialized cells that that make up the plant. They can divide whenever they need to and they produce new cells of whatever type they need, right? So it's a stem cell. And the meristem exists at the tip of all plants, including Arabidopsis, that allows them to actually grow new stems or new roots. And in the trees, you know, trees that we see every day, they're also found in the trunk. Okay, and it's been known since the 50s for a lot of, for many decades that the meristems, these tips of the plants, these root tips, have an, a pretty amazing ability they can be virus-free. We're talking about virus. We're not talking about coronavirus, but we're talking about plant virus. They can stay virus-free as they actually give rise to their daughter cells, even if the rest of the plant is actually infected by the virus. So what people have been able to do is to essentially just chop off the meristem, that uninfected part of the plant, when the rest of the plant is actually infected, and then put it into a test tube or put it into some soil or whatever, and then you can grow out an entirely new plant that's free of virus. It's a pretty amazing phenomenon. And until now, they haven't really had a great understanding of how that actually happens. And so uh, what these folks from China, uh, last author is Song Zhao, coming from the Hefei National Laboratory of Physical Sciences. Uh, these folks were able to demonstrate in, in this science study that this protein complex wushul is actually triggering an innate antiviral immunity in plant stem cells. So this is telling us that it's this wushul protein instead of proteins that actually is conferring this protective ability. And it's a really important protein that plays a pretty key regulatory role in determining stem cell fate at the early stages of the development of the plant embryo. And it oversees the meristems and maintains them in this undifferentiated form and actually specifies what kind of cells they can turn into. So what do they do? They actually inoculated the virus directly onto the Arabidopsis's uh, meristem and just below it, and they found that the virus can only spread um, in the in the the non-stem region. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's showing this observation, right? And in particular, they're able to demonstrate that it's this Wuschel set of proteins that's actually conferring this protective effect. And finally, they used a chemical that's gained a little bit of notoriety recently, dexamethasone, uh, that's able to actually induce the production of the Wuschel proteins in, in the Arabidopsis to actually confer that protective effect. So they inoculated more Arabidopsis with the virus and then gave the plants some kind of uh, dexamethasone treatment. And some of the, you know, and then they had a control group. And 89% of the plants without the treatment were infected with virus, but 90% of those with the dexamethasone treatment were actually free from viral invasion. So it's this Wuschel set of proteins that's actually inhibiting the production of viral proteins in the meristem. And it's you can use dexamethasone to kind of mimic that effect. And what's the the long-term implication here? There's a lot of interest in generating healthy plants because everybody uses plants for for food and friendship too. <laughs> um, so if we can generate these healthy virus protected plants, then that has a lot of implication for crops, right? And healthy crops, um, plant viruses really can devastate crops in, across the world here in the U.S. and across the world in China. So if we can find ways to actually protect and uh, um, mimic that protective effect of these mutual proteins that'll be beneficial for all of mankind. Yes, I know this is a, the implications here are like food security, I get that, but one of the, the best books I ever read, although the author is like a total weirdo politically, but uh, this, it was a sequel to Ender's Game, Speaker for the Dead, and the premise, mm -hmm. and this is a bit of a spoiler, um, but I don't care. The premise at the end is like that, that it's like the integration of animal and plant life cycles. And it's such mm -hmm. a beautiful idea. Uh, 
and I mention it because you wonder if maybe there are some some mechanisms at play in the plant that could be applied, that may be conserved or could be, you know, <laughs> like rested out of the plant uh, biology and applied in, in, a, in a mammalian system. I don't know. I'd like to think that um, although we're not going to be integrated with plants in our life cycle, like the, the little guys and speaker for the dead, that there may be some, some translational uh, applications of this kind of research. Arun, what do you think? Well, first of all, I love, love that book. The Piggies, right? That's the Piggies, yeah, the yeah. Piggies. <laughs> the Piggies, I think like when they die, they like turn into a tree or something. Yeah, it's so such cool. a beautiful thing. But hey, maybe you're onto something, right? Maybe we can harness some of these wushal protective factors to protect us against coronavirus. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Well, we'll have to talk to our guest. You know, she does that comparative thing. Maybe she could go deep into the plant stem cells and, uh, you know, twist up her operation to that end for us. But before we get there, I got a message from stem cell. We're talking about plant stem cells. Let's get back to human. Take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with M-Teaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies. It's the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance. It's now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. M-Teaser Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, you can visit www.stemcell.com slash M teaser plus Arun, what do you think of M teaser plus? I am a big fan of M teaser plus. And I'm saying that honestly, as a new parent, as a new father who has to spend a lot of time at home on the weekends, it's a lifesaver. So I'm all for it. All right, guys, today we have the special pleasure of having Dr. Mickey Ebisuya, who is group leader at the European molecular biology laboratory in Barcelona. She's on the show to talk about her work. The Abyssia Group reconstitutes developmental mechanisms by making artificial gene circuits and studies interspecies differences by comparing organoids of different animals. Dr. Abyssia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, well, it's our pleasure. And let me just start by saying I love the description of your lab, synthetic <laughs> developmental biology, gene circuits, and organoid zoo. It's so cool. Let's start with the synthetic developmental biology part. For me, at least, synthetic is a, is a loaded term. Uh, it's linked to like artificial or human-made products in sharp contrast to quote-unquote natural processes. Uh, what is the sweet spot between these two ideas that identify synthetic developmental biology? And is your ultimate endpoint in synthetic developmental biology to be indistinguishable from natural developmental biology? Mm. So to me, synthetic means in vitro models and manipulation and so we try to recapitulate or reconstitute developmental processes to study some mechanisms uh, because um, in, by using in vitro models. And in vitro models have several advantages. We can, of course, compare different species in similar culture conditions. And quantitative measurements are much easier in in vitro. And we also uh, mean synthetic and um, we also mean manipulation by synthetic so our ultimate goal is to manipulate and developmental mechanisms so in yeah so for those meanings i use synthetic but uh, it can be similar to normal developmental natural developmental biology but to me synthetic means in vitro elements and um, manipulation mm. So let's talk a little bit more about one of these synthetic in vitro models. And the timing is actually perfect to have you here on the podcast, Dr. Ebisuya, because your lab actually just published a paper in Science exploring the species-specific differences of the segmentation clock during development. So an increase in protein stability and cell cycle duration in human cells 
compared with mouse cells was correlated with a twofold slower rate of human differentiation. And this shows that biochemical rates play a pretty major role in setting the pace of development. So what I'm wondering is if these differences in developmental rate hold up outside of outside of mammals as well. And do these biochemical differences tell us something about aging too? So tell us more about this amazing story. <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely um, studying non-mammalian species would be exciting, um, but Heterosomic animals are difficult to study because temperature greatly affects um, biochemical reactions and biological time. And also prepotent stem cells, ES cells and IPS cells, um, making them is currently quite difficult for non-mammalian species. And the whole point of our study is to induce the same cell type from prepotent stem cells from multiple species. So that's why we are currently focusing on mammalian species. And as for aging, uh, we haven't done anything, but what we have found, um, the mechanism we found, the protein degradation and the delays in gene expression processes, they are very general mechanisms that can affect any biological processes, including aging. So my ultimate dream is to manipulate um, these, um, the ultimate cause of interspecies difference in developmental time to make mouse tissues that show human time. Hmm. And then those modified mouse tissues may show differences even in other biological processes like aging. So that, that's my dream. <laughs> And just to follow up on that, I'm guessing your interest extends to the length of gestation between species as well, right? Yes. I've been interested in several differences in time between species. For instance, why is a gestation period nine months in humans, only 20 days in mice, and almost two years in elephants? As a model system to study such an interspecies difference in time, we've recently recapitulated the segmentation clock from human IPS cells and mouse ES cells. Interestingly, the oscillation period of the in vitro segmentation clock was five hours in human cells and two hours in mouse cells. And we found that this period difference is because human cells have slower biochemical reactions, like slower protein degradation and longer delays in gene expression processes. Obviously, the next question to address uh, would be why the biochemical reactions are slower in human cells. But for now, uh, we've shown that because of the slower biochemical reactions, the human segmentation clock is two to three times slower than that of mice. While we're talking about it, if you just look at the, the a scale model, like, is it just a matter of bigger animals take longer gestation? I mean, you must have thought about that. Is that how it lines up? Are there any small animals, for example, that have a really long gestation or vice versa? Well, there are a lot of exceptions, but if you see a lot of animal species, there's a general trend, uh, general correlation between the um, animal body weight and uh, uh, developmental time or any biological time. So generally speaking, larger species um, tend to show longer, slower time. Does that suggest that like dinosaurs were gestating for like 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> but they, they have eggs, right? Have eggs. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yep, yep. And as I said before, uh, heterosomic animals are difficult to compare mm -hmm. because of this temperature difference. Yes. Well, I just betrayed my uh, lack of comparative evolutionary biological <laughs> knowledge there. So, you know, I'm an old school developmental biologist by training. I don't exactly know what that means, old school, but I'm just going to throw it out there. But the point I'm trying to make is I, I love, you know, the basic TGF beta, you know, morphogen gradients, active and note all that stuff. And, I, you know, going back into your archives, it seems like you focused on, you know, different aspects of that basic signaling, these dual input systems like nodal and lefty, notch and delta, and how they drive signal propagation and pattern formation. Um, so, yeah, as I'm alluding to, this has been central to developmental biology, these 
pathways before even the genes themselves were identified, the, the processes were being studied. Um, yet we're still kind of struggling to understand how they're integrated even today. How does your approach add to the traditional toolkit? Mm. So we reconstitute a nodal lefty signaling or a notch delta signaling, um, partly because I just like making things, or it's fun to make things. But um, a more official reason is to test our current understandings about these unsignaling pathways. Um, for instance, we reconstituted the gene circuit of what well, data not signaling or not left signaling that give rise to cellular patterning, a salt and pepper pattern or a reaction diffusion pattern. Or even though many researchers had already shown that those signaling pathways are involved in cellular patterning, we wanted to prove that by actually making those mechanisms. And we always hope to find some missing elements uh, or make some unexpected discoveries through reconstitutions. So that's our motivation. Right. And the, uh, the tools that you're using to actually investigate some of these developmental processes are extremely important. And we're a big fan, of course, here on the podcast of one of the tools that you're using, uh, organoids. And it seems like we talk about them every single episode, right? Your lab has actually used organoids in a non-traditional approach by combining these principles of developmental biology and synthetic biology to actually study the mechanisms of development. And these organoids are, of course, simple 3D replicates of bodily tissues. And maybe one criticism is that they're not complex enough to replicate the intricate processes that are actually happening during development. I'm sure you disagree with that statement, but in your opinion, as a synthetic developmental biologist, what should we look to improve in organoid biology so that these organoids can be best used to study development? My group has been mainly using 2D stem cell differentiations rather than 3D and culture. We sometimes use 3D cultures, but for quantitative measurements of dynamics, actually 2D differentiation is advantageous. So um, we've been focusing on yeah, 2D induction. But uh, so because, that's because we've been focusing on developmental timing or time. But I'm also interested in organ size or body size. And therefore, and I really want to make um, bigger structures by using organoids. Well, um, so I've been interested in interspecies differences in organ sizes. Like um, it would be cool. It, if we can study why human heart or human liver is larger than that of mice, but uh, current organoids don't fully grow in vitro, as we all know. So um, I, we, I want to make uh, organoids bigger um, by making by using, for instance, perfusion of organoids. And actually, one of my wonderful colleagues at Embo Barcelona, uh, Christina Haas is working on um, perfusing organoids or asteroids. So I'm quite looking forward to her study. Yeah, it's a major challenge is scale, right? Um, and I mean, I don't know if it's surmountable, but uh, we're making great strides every day with the, the technology. And a big part of, of I think, uh, making these things in real life is modeling them in silico, right? Uh, you got to have some major high-powered machinery to model these relatively, I guess, simple inputs. You talk about these by, you know, dual input systems, but like, how do you get a dual input? It seems like a simple idea that makes a really complex pattern. Like, yeah, that's biology and we all take it for granted, but you've worked and you know how, how elegant and and complex it is at the same time. Um, and I guess you've used a lot of uh, computer modeling um, and in silico modeling to guide your experimental processes uh, generally. I'm sure all synthetic development, developmental biology, a big part of that is in silico synthesis. Um, but with, the, with that, there comes this whole idea of, of computer power advances seemingly with no end. You know, Moore's law, which may be slowing down, but still we're getting more and more high-powered supercomputers every year. There's some more giga petaflops coming out. Uh, does your ability to model bi the biology get better 
as the the, the teraflops keep coming off the line? Hmm. So perhaps yes for models that use a lot of components and parameters. In my case, however, uh, I always use very simple models, and so I don't really need much computer power, computing power. Uh, however, one area I'm quite interested in right now is AI and deep learning. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping to combine deep learning with uh, lab automation to develop organoid protocols in semi-automated manner. Hmm. And currently, uh, organoid protocol development takes a lot of manual trials and errors. But it would be great if we can use maybe reinforcement learning type deep learning to improve or develop organoid protocols in future. And for that, um, bigger computing power would be beneficial. Got it. Well, sometimes simple is just good enough. So I think your <laughs> science has been really exciting, even not using AI and up to this point. So I can't wait to see how you're going to incorporate that into the, the next step of your research. So not only is your science exciting, but your journey has been pretty exciting in your career as well. You made a cross world jump in your career that I'm sure a lot of people are would be pretty afraid to make. You actually decided to move from your home in Japan where you lived all your life across the globe to Spain and Barcelona. So talk about that huge change in culture, food, and language. And to a lot of people, that would be a really scary transition to make. But you've actually found pretty incredible success in Barcelona. So what motivated you to make that jump? And what do you love about Barcelona in and out of the lab? Um, well, first of all, I really liked my research environment in Weeking or in Japan. Um, but as you know, Japan is a bit geographically isolated, and I wanted to meet new people. And fortunately, um, in Barcelona, I met new collaborators or new friends, and I'm quite happy. And well, I, I can't speak Spanish, but I'm learning. And the best part of living in Barcelona is um, that my current institute, Emble Barcelona, is right next to the beach. Hmm. So my scuba diving, well, my hobby is scuba diving, and I love the sea. And I don't hmm. do scuba diving in Barcelona, but just watching the beautiful ocean every day makes me happy. So I really, I'm really happy right now. Inspiration. Um, <laughs> you talk about uh, Japan being geographically isolated, uh, but you wonder if you were, well, I wonder if you were a bit isolated from a gender standpoint there. I, you know, J Japan has a lot of work to do on gender equality. It's pretty well documented that women have been actively excluded from STEM and other fields, or at least from advancing in those fields. Um, Yet not so much for you. You skipped a postdoc. You were granted your own group at Kyoto University right out of your PhD. But now you're in Spain, which following a cultural history of male dominance um, has actually recently cracked the top 10 globally in gender parity, which is saying a lot. I mean, it's way ahead of the United States. Do you, do you notice the difference? Do you think the culture in Japan can be limiting for women scientists? Um, would that may be true, um, but to be honest, I think most of the gender-related issues are more or less common in all countries. And to me, the biggest difference was um, it's much easier to talk about or point out the problems in European countries. But generally speaking, in Japan, we are educated to value the harmony or not to cause trouble. Mm. So even when I sensed a potential bias in someone's remarks, I used to hesitate to point it out because I didn't want to hurt that person's feelings. But by contrast, in European culture, people seem to value a lot um, in expressing their own opinions. So speaking out is much easier here. Mm. Hmm. That's an interesting point. And, you know, you have to think about these cultural differences, you know, depending on where you work. So uh, I think it's really 
inspiring that you've been able to achieve success in two completely independent cultures. So that's, that's amazing to see. So while you've made a home in Spain, you're still managing to maintain strong scientific links back to the Riken and to your home country of Japan. And you can see that with all the collaborative papers you've published. And the scientific world is getting smaller with trainees and data quickly traveling across the world, although maybe not right now during COVID. But tell us more about setting up and maintaining your cross-continent collaborations between Japan and Spain. Hmm. So thanks to online meetings, and I don't see any inconvenience in regular discussions or data exchange with my collaborators or uh, friends who are physically far away. Even starting a new collaboration is totally possible. Um, but yeah, by contrast, um, visiting a lab or learning a new technique um, have become quite difficult. And maybe or in the future, we may be able to solve it by using virtual reality or sharing a live video of ongoing experiments. So I, I hope that will be that will become true. Yeah, there's a lot that we've been able to retain productivity in this new virtual landscape. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. But the ISSCR was tough. I mean, they did it. They did a really amazing job. But and and I'm not hating on it, but I really missed it. I missed because having just once a year where everybody comes together, it really I mean, not having it really showed me how much I, I value it. Uh, and similarly, like you're alluding to, you know, getting getting into other people's labs and getting your hand on their equipment, getting their techniques. Um, yeah. it's a it's a it's a big loss. But uh, yeah, nothing lasts forever, right? Nothing lasts forever. And uh, this interview, it's the same thing. It's about to end. But before we get to the end, uh, we're going to move into the kind of periphery of science with a couple questions that don't exactly line up with research, but do have a science bend. The first one for you, Mickey, is. Uh, what's a non-science book that you're reading or that you've read that you think is awesome and you'd recommend to the listening audience? So when I was a high school student, I read a Japanese book titled The Time of an Elephant and The Time of a Mouse. This is a well, science book, but it's for the general public. Hmm. And this very interesting book taught me that different animal species live with different time scales. Hmm. And 20 years later, I'm still obsessed with this mystery. So this book affected me a lot. No kidding. Here we are in the Organoid Zoo, and it all started with this book. Amazing. I'll have to check that out. Um, all right. And we're going to do a series of fill in the blanks. I love this series. Uh, starting with the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? But to me... The pluripotent stem cells and ES cells, IPS cells from unconventional species like rhinoceros ES cells. Hmm. Wow. That is the coolest thing for sure. I, I would agree with that. A bit niche, Mickey. Um, <laughs> next, uh, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. Um, of course, my lab members, colleagues. Especially uh, my husband, Mitsuhiro Matsuda. Uh, he's actually a senior postdoc in the lab and the first author of two recent uh, segmentation clock papers published from the lab. So he and I have been partners for both our private life and research. That's a keeper. You want to you want to keep that husband because he's productive. My wife would say that he's more productive than I am. Um, but next, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. A sense of direction. I have no sense of direction. Um, but the old city of Barcelona is like a maze, and I love it. But I cannot go home without Google Maps <laughs> even now. Well, it's, you have a good excuse. You've been all over the world. It's hard to keep track. But that's what's great about Barcelona, right? You can get, <laughs> get lost on the Alhambra. Um, all right. Finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on my way out, it's? Mm, it's a difficult question, um, but probably I wouldn't grab anything. 
I just I would just run away with my lab members and colleagues. And unlike 10 years ago, all important data are stored in servers, <laughs> and I don't have much cash, so I don't even have to grab my wallet. So I can I can just run away. We've never received that answer. That's that's a great answer. I would I would run with my life. There you go. That's, that's good. That's actually the most honest. And scientists all think they're so smart, but the truth is, when things are on fire, you're just trying to get away. Uh, that's correct. Um, Mickey, so thanks so much for uh, joining us. This was a lot of fun, and um, we'd love to talk to you again uh, at your convenience. Thank you for your time. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. You know, by this very mechanism, we were led to this next episode we're having with three trainees that's going to be really exciting. So if you're listening now, you know, get in there. Send us a tweet, send us an email, send us a message volunteering yourself or another great guest and we might have you on. All right, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Check out that trainee episode. Thank you, Mickey, for joining us for this one. See you later, guys. Mm -hmm.